0: Resurrection and Logic. A stirring title, if ever there were one. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15. Let's think about the context that we've come into. First, we need to remember the major theme of 1 Corinthians is that the church is the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. So there's that connecting reality. The introduction to the book in chapter 1 verses 1 through 9 helps us to be introduced to the broader theme and so the presence of God in the midst of the church exists in faith and the possession of his word and we are then reminded that all unity and right honor come from a place of having a right doctrine of knowledge epistemology, how do you know what's true those are the questions associated with epistemology the study of doctrine, the study of knowledge The how do you know and so a doctrine of authority comes from that. So unity and division, right honor and wrong honor, are considered there. So that goes through chapter 4. Chapters 5 and 6 are about church courts and civil courts. And so we are reminded of the shamefulness of taking a brother to a civil court rather than going through the church courts. That does not mean that somebody who was once a brother who is removed from the church is then incapable of having the sword wielded against him by the magistrate. It simply means... That we ought to go through the church courts first, and if a person is in contempt of the church courts, they ought to be excommunicated, and then from there, they can be taken to the civil court. Chapter 7 deals with issues of marriage and the issues of persecution, and so we are reminded that there are times when it might be wise to forego marriage for a period, but also that even in the midst of trouble, it is not sin to get married. And so the question is, which is the greater risk, the trouble or burning with lust? Those are the problems. Those are the things to be considered that Paul puts before us. Then chapters 8 through 14 deal with food in public order, a Presbyterian section of a book, if ever there were one. And so in the discussion of food, talks about food devoted to idols, don't eat it. Wages for officers? Pay them. The Lord's table? Come to it. Come to it rightly. Don't come to it wrongly. Those are the things that we're encouraged. And we're also told you cannot eat at the table of demons and at the table of the Lord. We get to public order. The differentiation between men and women. Hair and head coverings. Those all get brought up. Gifts of the Spirit and their proper use in the public assembly. The... General principle that two or three witnesses ought to speak when testimony is given is applied to the public assembly of the church. And so we want to see in a more mature state two to three teachings publicly. Right now we get away on a shoestring with a second person reading the text. Thank you, Mr. Schaefer. And so this idea that there is supposed to be questioning and speaking that is able to be done by the men and women or not to engage in the questioning in the public assembly, but should engage in that discussion in the private sphere. And they're in particular encouraged to go to their husbands, to encourage their husbands to be goaded along to figure it out. Then we get to the gospel and the resurrection. We spent a good chunk of time on verses 1 through 11 last time because they are super important. That's the technical term. Those verses are super important. So now, just to review the super important verses, let's look at that. The gospel, verses 1 to 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Remember, the word gospel and the word law have three different senses. I'm not going to remind you of all of them right now, but I want to remind you of the one that's being talked about here. The gospel is being talked about as the narrow saving message. The gospel in terms of the narrow saving message. And in our administration in this time since Christ has come, These messages here are key, and we we leave out a lot of it because we don't think it's nearly as important as other parts. Now, it's true that some things are more important than others. The death of Christ to pay for sins is the most important thing in these 11 verses. But we are given the new administration of the covenant of grace laid out for us in summary form here, and it tells us about the wholeness of the salvation that we have, because it's not just about the doctrine of justification, which is key. you not minimizing it. You can believe the doctrine of justification and go to heaven. And you can believe all the other doctrines here and not believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone and still go to hell. Okay, so that one is the proposition to get right. Now, the rest of the matter, because once you're saved, saved to what? Verse 2. Two, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we have this idea of, of the word saving, the gospel saving. And we're reminded that the gospel is distinct from the law. Right? The, law, the, the gospel is declarative sentences. It's news. It's promises. It's indicatives. The law is imperatives, commandments, stuff to do. Do this and live. The gospel, the just to live. By faith, just by faith shall live. All right, so we think about now holding fast, right? So we want to hold on to the truth. We want to be able to push away false doctrine. And we're saved by faith in the gospel unless we believed in vain, which Paul's going to spend a lot of time on in the resurrection section showing us what a vain faith is. And that vain faith would principally be the idea of believing a contradictory nonsense fest of falsehood. Okay, so let's not do that. Let's not believe a contradictory, nonsense, fest of falsehood. Let's believe a systematic capturing of the truth. Let's not believe in vain. Let's believe meaningfully. So, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. The Gospels of first importance. 3b. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Remember, what we're being told there is that the the Old Testament predicted Christ coming to die for our sins. The New Testament teaches that it happened. And the Scriptures explain the meaning of it. So it's not just that Christ died. It's not just that He died for our sins. It's He died for our sins. And what does that mean? How did He die for our sins? It's a propitiatory death. He, as a substitute, came to pay for our debt, to turn away the wrath of God, to turn the favor of God toward us on the basis of his righteousness. And we have all that. And so that right there is the how. That's the explanatory piece. Verse 4 And he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. His burial and his resurrection are predicted, taught, and explained in the Scriptures they're predicted taught and explained verse 5 and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the 12 right this is when we start to tune out verse 5 this is the tune out verse of the gospel right gospel's real good and we get to verse 5 and we tune out we go what is this Cephas what are we talking about that's the less cool name for Peter right so we have Peter he's seen by Peter and then by the 12 okay what is this about? Peter is used as a representative of the apostles. He's sort of the leader of them. He's the one who does the most actively. He's the one who tends to be the tip of the spear, or maybe we'd say the, uh, the sharp edge of the sword that cuts off an ear. Is that a, is that a common saying? No. Okay, that's just a Peter thing. Right, so he's the guy that does things and then thinks. So what we see Peter as is sort of the guy who's taking action. The twelve are the twelve apostles that are the apostles to the Jews. One for each of the twelve tribes. They're the twelve princes. And that reminds us of the governmental order of Israel established by Jethro the prophet. Okay? Jethro as a prophet, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, goes and talks to Moses and says, You know, God told me you should do this. And Moses, a prophet, goes, You're right, father-in-law. That's a good idea. Let's get judges. One per ten, one per fifty, one per hundred, one per thousand. Tribal officers, and let's have a council of seventy. Real good deal. Let's do this. Now, each tribe has a moderator or a prince. And so, the twelve apostles fill the offices of the twelve princes because there's an apostate government. So they judge the twelve tribes. Did you think that was a part of the Gospel? That's a part of the New Covenant order. Verse 6. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This is the doctrine of the witness of the church. The church is a witness to the resurrection. The church is a witness to the resurrection. We preach the resurrection. We also preach the death of Christ. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death till He comes. Well, we preach the resurrection. What's that about? It's about the idea that we're preaching that He was resurrected, that He's the first fruits of the resurrection, that the world is going to be resurrected, that there's a life that's going to fill this dead earth. So the testimony of the church to victory. Verse 7, And after that He was seen by James and then by all the apostles. James is the moderator of the Council of Jerusalem. James is the moderator of the Council of Jerusalem. He doesn't get to cut anybody's ear off, but he does get to take action in the Council. You determine who won. James represents what apostles? What apostles are we talking about? Seen by all the apostles. Is this talking about the twelve? No, it's talking about the seventy. The seventy apostles sent out by Christ. The 70 apostles represent the 70 in terms of the council that rules in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin replaces that. And furthermore, the 70 apostles also have to do with going to the 70 nations. So you have the table of nations and you have the council, the ruling council. And so there's a foreshadowing. God had always planned for there to be 70 nations, and He always planned for the ruling council to have 70, and He always planned for the 70 apostles to point to both, and He always planned for that to point to the Catholicity of the church over all of the nations and for the idea that that would go not just to Israel, but broadly. So then, James, as the moderator of that assembly, points to this idea that there's a Catholicity of the church courts. So when we think about international church courts, we think of things like Nicaea. We think of things like Chalcedon. We should think of Jerusalem first. Jerusalem was the first one. And then we think of Nicaea and Chalcedon. And then from there, we should also think and remember that there are major ones that occurred in the Reformation. Now, there's a significant council that was not considered an ecumenical council, but it did have bishops from multiple nations at it called Council of Orange um, and also Carthage who have major discussions about the idea of Augustinianism versus Pelagianism. But in the Reformation, we see A number of national synods occurring and then we see Dort as an international church court that deals with the Armenian controversy and then people often think of Westminster as just being a British thing but remember that included the kingdoms of Scotland and Wales and England and Ireland so we have an international council there So this idea of the Catholicity, the multinationality, the internationality of the church is pointed to there. Verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. This points to the idea that Paul is the last apostle. Remember last time we looked at the text that talked about the idea that an apostle must have seen the resurrected Lord. And furthermore... Paul sees him late. Like it's out of due time. It's this weird exception. He is made an apostle. He's not one of the twelve. Remember, Matthias replaces Judas, becomes one of the twelve. Matthias's spot in the seventy is the spot that Paul takes. So Paul, as an apostle, is one of the seventy. He's an apostle not to the Jews. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And as an apostle to the Gentiles, he's one of the 70. And as an apostle who's a part of the 70, he's the last one. He's the last guy to get qualified, and he's the last guy to become an apostle. And so that points to the idea that there's a completion of the canon because the apostles are weird. Here's how they're weird Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, remember, teaches us. In the past God revealed himself variously and in sundry ways. And he did it through the prophets. But in these last days, in the last days this is also an equally valid translation. In the last days, the last days of the old covenant. He revealed himself by his son. That's supposed to be a climax. Prophets inferior to the son of God. Son of God better And prophets. So in having prophets reveal God to us, that's a maximization. Isn't it kind of a downgrade to go to Paul? I mean, I like Paul. Paul's pretty cool. I like Paul, but he's not the son of God. Doesn't seem as good as Jesus. So why do we go prophets, Jesus, back to Paul? Why do we go to Peter? Cool guy, sword and everything. Not as good as Jesus. What's that about? The apostles are messengers of Jesus. Their ministry is an extension of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is called the Apostle of the Father. And the apostles of Jesus are an extension of His ministry. And so, the ministry of the apostles is an extension of the ministry of Christ. And so when they finish, when the last apostle lays down his last pen, there is no more Scripture. The apostolic office is the final extension out of the revelation from the Son because it is the deposit of teaching that the Son gave to the apostles and it's delivered to the church. So he's the last apostle and he's born out of due time. Anybody else who claims to see the risen Christ is lying. Anybody else who claims to receive prophecy is lying. The last person to receive revelation was John the Apostle. Verse 9, Paul was the last person to be made an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is part of the gospel. Right, this part feels a little weird. It's like, Are we all just saying, like, do we all have to pretend to be Paul here? Like when we're saying this? I am the least of the apostles. Everybody say it robotically with me. That's, that's not the point. The point is this. Here's the doctrine every one of you should be able to say that you are the chief of sinners. Every one of you should be able to say that you are the chief of sinners. That's what's happening here. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So part of the gospel is a recognition of our own guilt. And so a subjective self-awareness of the guilt of sin, we have, even though we are not literally the worst or chief of sinners, and Paul was not... Objectively speaking, Stalin was worse than Paul. Can Can we all get on board with this? So if that's the case, how is it the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can say he's the chief of sinners? Well, because he's more aware of his own sin than of Stalin's sin. I am more aware of Stalin's sin than mine. I'm less humble than Paul. Hopefully I'll get there. So, we should all be more aware of our own sin... And the more mature we are, the more we're going to be aware of our own guilt. And that's going to cause us to be humble. And so, an awareness of our own guilt makes it so that we can humbly serve. Humility helps us to advance the mission of the glory of God. Humility caused by recognition of our own sins, our own objective guilt. So, looking upon our guilt not as a thing that condemns us to hell but as a thing that makes us realize we are unworthy of the graces we have received. That's a part of the gospel. Notice it changes guilt from condemning to a cause for gratitude. So a part of the gospel, verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Now you hear that and you have a hard time not thinking of Popeye? No, just me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. So what we have is the grace of salvation and the grace of gifting are both things that we receive. And so we know that our, our usefulness and our salvation are from God and not from us. Our usefulness and our salvation are from God and not from us. Which allows us to be useful without becoming proud. So our usefulness is not rooted in self-righteousness, but in a humility. That's a part of the Gospel. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The good works we do are a fruit of the Holy Spirit and they are motivated out of gratitude for grace already given, rooted in the guilt that we recognize. In other words, doctrine 9 can be summarized he who is forgiven much loves much. So if the Holy Spirit causes you to see your guilt deeply, you will see the grace of God more deeply, which will cause you to be more grateful so that you can do good works to His glory. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. So, we have this idea, the psychological virtuous cycle of the three G's. Whenever you feel guilty from the law of God, remember the gospel. Look to the grace of God in the gospel. And that should make you grateful, which should motivate you to look back into the law so that you can do what gratitude requires. Because you are desirous to do it out of gratitude. Not to earn your salvation, because you are so thankful. The increase of thankfulness is a part of what the gospel produces, and that's a part of the gospel. Verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This teaches there's a unity and holiness of the church. Whether it's I or they, we're all set together on this mission. So we preach. Who preaches it? Well, the true church does, but the apostles do. The apostolic deposit is what's preached. So, the church is, one, it's unified, it's holy, it's apostolic, and it's Catholic because it's received. This this is received by all of the churches. They receive the apostolic tradition so that there is a universal confession, there's a belief of what the apostles have delivered. So that is what we're taught here. These are doctrines laid out, we talked about the Apostles' Creed, and we talked about how Hell is a terrible translation. Hades is better. He descended into Hades. He didn't go and suffer for three days. He went to paradise. In paradise, he waited for the resurrection. He was with the thief in paradise. He's not in hell for their paying. Remember, he said it's finished on the cross. He paid it all. He didn't have to go to hell to pay for anything. Additionally, there were no saints waiting in hell for Jesus to come and get them. They were already in Abraham's bosom. And Abraham was there too. They were already saved. They were in paradise. They were not waiting for Jesus to pay for their sins. God the Father knew that Jesus was good for it. And so he held the tab. Payment got made. He wasn't punishing people for stuff Jesus was going to pay for. That's not the way tabs work. right? You don't say, pay me cash now. I'll put it on the tab. And then I'll get payment later. You go, If somebody does that with a tab with you, you go, wait a second. That requires double payment. Alright, page six. So here we are. That's the new stuff. That was the stuff that was worth reviewing because of, it is of high importance. That is a summary text of the gospel. Remember this. Memorize the Ten Commandments. Memorize 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. Those are key passages that give you a doctrinal framework. You have law-gospel distinction, and you know how to pray rightly. Those are heads of doctrine passages that are extremely valuable. So chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. What we've got is a discussion of the resurrection, and Paul is going to give us a master class in logic. He's going to show us things that are immediately absurd. Syllogisms that lead to absurd conclusions. He's going to rely upon assumed premises and enthymemes to arrive at conclusions. And he's going to chain them together in what is called a sorites. In case you don't know what all those mean, I have given to you definitions of a syllogism and an enthymeme, and a sorites. So, I'm not going to read everything I've got there. I'm going to read you the basic definitions for some of these things, and I want you to see them as we go through. I thought about it for a while. There's some really good stuff on Wikipedia, by the way. That is like an amazing, amazing set of glorious-looking Venn diagrams about all of the valid syllogisms. Okay? So if you want to geek out about logic, go to Wikipedia, look for the valid syllogism stuff, and just look at the Venn diagrams. It's going to be amazing. Now... Talk about a syllogism. What's a syllogism? A syllogism is a basic form of deductive reasoning with two premises leading to a necessary conclusion. Okay, so two premises. You've got a little thing organized down at the bottom. Here's here's the example. All humans are mortal. Socrates is a human, therefore Socrates is mortal. Okay, that's that follows the, the middle term is called is human human connects mortality with Socrates so it's in both of the premises and then we have this idea of mortality and we have Socrates and they get linked and that goes into the conclusion so all the terms that are in the conclusion are present in the premises and these forms are called A forms they are um, all statements, they're universal statements And so we can arrive at a conclusion that's a universal conclusion. So that's what this is. Now, an enthymeme is a syllogism, just the thing we just looked at above. But what happens is you don't state all the premises because everybody knows one of the premises, or at least your audience does. So you don't say it. So if I said, you know, all humans are mortals, and Socrates is mortal. Sorry, sorry, I messed that up. If I say Socrates is is human, therefore Socrates is mortal, you'd all get it. If I said Socrates is human, therefore Socrates is mortal, you'd all get it. Why? Because you have in your head the hidden premise that all humans are mortal. If I say somebody's human, therefore that guy is mortal, you all get it. I don't have to say the other premise. So that's one of the things you see. So Paul does a number of enthymemes in this text that we're going to look at. I go to page 7. You have a sorites. This whole text here, this chunk of text is a sorites. Okay, what's a sorites? A sorites is a chain of syllogisms leading to a final conclusion. Okay, it's a chain of syllogisms leading to a final conclusion. So what Paul does here is he has syllogisms in an form linked together as a sorites. So what's that about? Well, this is here so that we can learn about logic. That's part of it. That's a part of why this is here, is to show us a very clear text that shows the rigorous use of logic. Okay, so this is a great proof text to show how necessary inference is embedded in Scripture itself. Now, let's go through... And having talked about those things, you're going to see them as we look at the text. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so here's, here's the problem Paul just put forward. You know, we have been saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so why is it that some of you claiming to believe the gospel say that nobody's resurrected from the dead? Okay now, if you're marginally observant, you already see where this is going. So now Paul is going to hold our hands as we cross the street together. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, he's jumping to the bottom. Right? He's jumping to the conclusion. And now he's going to lay out the chain of reasoning that gets there. Verse 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. So remember earlier on, unless you believed in vain, this would be the same idea. If, if the preaching is empty, your faith is empty. In other words, your faith is vain. Your, the preaching was Vain. I so do you believe in vain? Well, if the preaching is empty, then your faith is empty. You do believe in vain. That's the idea. Okay. So Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ. You see how He's going back up to the idea that we preach that Christ was raised from the dead? So He's, he's helping you. He's holding your hand through, showing you the logic of it. Now, you all got it right away, but how did you get it? Well, Paul's showing you the careful analysis of the reasoning step by step why it has to arrive there. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Okay, so this is a hypothetical in thematic, syllogism, sorites. Okay? The if statement. If this is true, then this reasoning necessarily follows chain, chain, chain to get to the conclusion. Verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, vain, empty. You are still in your sins. There is a consequence... You're still guilty, because if he didn't rise from the dead, the gospel you received is false. His sacrifice wasn't accepted. You're still guilty. Verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Okay, verse 19 is taken out of context a lot, and people um, you know, will kind of look at that, and they'll think, okay if we have hope in Christ in this life, but there's no benefit in the next life, then um, we'd be pitiable. The point is, and then people will often say things like, you know, if I had to be Christian and it were false, I'd still live a better life. Well, that's not Paul's position. Paul's position is, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. He's going to get to the conclusion later on. He's going to say, if if this is all we've got, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. I mean, just make the best of it. Because right, what we've got is we are going through a bunch of unnecessary suffering for false things. That's what Paul is saying. The life you live is dependent upon the goal you have, which is dependent upon what's true. So, this is very practical. Hypothetical, <coughs> enigmatic syllogistic surites are super practical. The most practical. The Practicalist. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. So we should pay special attention to how to not be the most pitiable people. So verse 12 teaches us this. If if the gospel preached includes the doctrine that Christ was resurrected from the dead, then why would anyone in the church, the people who receive the apostolic deposit, claim that there's no resurrection of the dead? What does that mean? It means nobody ever is resurrected from the dead. That's the silliness. Now, we think this is silly. This is absurd. Why do we think it's absurd? Because it's laid out explicitly in the Bible, right? There are so many things that are clear in the Bible that the modern church does not accept, and we, we, none of, and we, don't, we don't get it. Like, we don't see it. So this is laid out with this type of clarity. But think about this. The modern church has just as long of a passage about head coverings. With about as many arguments, the modern church—most churches don't even have church courts. Modern church, most churches don't sing any psalms. I mean, there's an entire book of the Bible there. It's the longest book of the Bible, like by far, like the longest book. The number of things that are obvious in the Bible that we miss are really high. And the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the saints is in a lot of other places than just here. It's in a lot of other places. How could the church in Corinth not believe in the resurrection and not get that by denying the resurrection they're denying the resurrection of Christ? And by denying the resurrection of Christ, they're denying the truth of the Gospel. And by denying the truth of the Gospel, they're denying their own salvation. And by denying their own salvation, denying the usefulness of their own lives. So let's take this home for a second. There's lots of stuff in the Bible that you just don't want to deal with. There are things that as you're reading the Bible, you go, I don't know how to deal with this, and you move on. And your response is, yeah. And you keep going. And if that's never been you, if you've never just hit something in the Bible and gone, I don't know how to deal with this, and moved on, if you haven't done that, then great. You must have like the most integrity ever. But if you have ever had one of those things, and you have moved past it, we need to repent. We need to repent of the times when we see stuff in the Bible, don't know how to deal with it, and we just move on and forget about it. Write them down. Let them make you squirm. Figure them out. Look into them. Ask me about them. Ask your husbands about them, ladies. Husbands, you don't know the answer, tell them you'll get right back to it, run to the restroom, give me a phone call. If I don't know, I'll say I have to go to the restroom, and I'll call you back. we got to figure it out. We have to figure it out. This is the thing. Unless, of course, you believe in vain, then it's not the thing. Do you believe in vain? The knowledge of God is the thing. Like, let's figure it out. You have something you don't know how to deal with, let's figure it out. Somebody points out something that seems contradictory and you don't know how to deal with it, let's work it out. Let's figure it out. That's how we grow. Verse 13, so this is page 7, point 24, if no one has been, is, or will be resurrected from the dead, then Christ is not risen from the dead. Verse 14, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then the apostolic deposit, which includes the claim that Jesus is risen, is false, and if the apostolic deposit is false, then your faith is in vain. Verse 15, furthermore, if no one has been, is, or will be risen, then we are false witnesses of God. That's the Apostles. Because we have been witness to the opposite when God did not raise up Christ. You see how this is a problem? Like, denial of the resurrection unravels the whole thing. But honestly, if you just replace the word resurrection with any doctrine that the Bible teaches anywhere, that works too. That's why apostasy at any point is an apostasy at every point. Luther famously said. The difference between a brave soldier and a cowardly soldier is that the brave soldier or the cowardly soldier defends the line against the enemy at every point except for the point where the enemy attacks. And the brave soldier defends where the enemy attacks. Verse 16, if no one has been raised, is risen, or will be raised, then Christ is not risen. Right? There's an argument from the, major, from the universal to the particular. Verse 17, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain, since it would not be the instrument of justification, because you'd be believing in something false. So you would still be in your sins. Verse 18, if there's no resurrection, well, let's look at that. There's three ways in which it's futile, right? Think about this. First, Christianity would become meaningless because it's self-contradictory, so it's futile in that way. Second, Christianity would be false, so it would be futile in that way. Thirdly, it would be futile because it would be ineffectual because Christ dying and not being resurrected, we would not have the sign of the acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ, and so we would have no reason to believe that we had been saved. The meaning of the resurrection is a... Demonstration of the acceptance of the sacrifice. Christ could not remain dead because there was no basis for Him to take the punishment of death. And so His resurrection is showing that death has no power over Him because His payment satisfied the debt. Verse 18, If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then all who have died believing the apostolic deposit have truly perished They have entered a spiritual death. They have entered an everlasting death. There's no salvation for them. Verse 19. If we have hope in Christ only for this life, then we have a false hope, and then we we are more pitiable than all other men because we are deceived, pursuing a lie, and we sacrifice only to go to everlasting torment. Verse 20. So what we got through there is a deconstructive work. Paul has torn down this false doctrine by showing if you accept this false doctrine then here's the results. He shows the absurd conclusions. He shows the self-contradictory mess. So you cannot try to claim Jesus paid for my sins but also he wasn't resurrected. So there's lots of things like that. In our day there are many ways in which people twist the scriptures. We have uh, our our generation has reached new heights of scripture twisting. There are more twistings of more scriptures in more academic ways than has ever been done in the history of the world before. There are more books published in more volume with more footnotes than ever teaching falsehood. And guess what? We're still going to win. my theory is that those books all get written in the providence of God so that the world can get warmer so we can farm in Canada and Russia. That's what I think those books are for. So, verse 20. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have died, fallen asleep. Okay, so the other one was a hypothetical scenario. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, then this. That's false. False. But, disjunctive. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, his particular example of being resurrected means that all will be resurrected. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order... Christ the firstfruits; afterward, those who are Christ at His coming. Now, Hodge does some really helpful stuff here. So, what I want to do is I want to read to you the underlined part that Hodge does. So, Hodge says, Charles Hodge says that this is not talking about everybody in the world, including the reprobate being resurrected because of union with Christ. This is specifically talking about a limited set. So in other words, all who are in Adam, all who are covenantally united to Adam, are condemned. So also, all who are covenantly united to Christ are justified. That's in Romans chapter 5. You have this kind of similar language of all in Adam, all in Christ, being put next to each other. So here is not absolutely all who die... Sorry. It is not absolutely all who die through Adam, but only those who were in him. So in other words, not everybody dies because, they're, because of Adam. It's only those who are united to him. Think about this. Here's an example. Righteous angels, did they die? Do righteous angels die? No. Righteous angels are not united to Adam. Therefore, they do not die. Okay, so what is the all here? The all is not all rational creatures, not even all human beings. And in fact, think about this. Does Christ die in union with Adam? Right? He represents Adam, but Adam didn't represent him. So, only those who are united to Adam, only those who are in Adam, only those who are represented by Adam, die in Adam. So also, all who live through Christ are those who are in Christ. So, Hodge is helpful there. And that's true, that's the way it is in Romans as well. So that's what's being talked about. This is not talking about the resurrection of everybody, it's talking about the resurrection of the elect. There are other passages that talk about the resurrection of everybody. Acts 24.15 is an example of such a passage. So there are other passages that teach that doctrine, but this is not a passage that's teaching about the resurrection of everybody. Now, page 9. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Alright, so then comes the end. So there's the resurrection and then there's the end. The end of what? What? This is the delivery of the kingdom of the Father. And it says it's when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So this is the end of the age. It's the end of the kingdom of grace. It's the end of the work of redemption. In other words, we go from kingdom of grace to the kingdom of glory is the way the sort catechism puts it. So this is a period of time in which all authority and power that opposes Christ is subdued. Christ puts an end to all rule and authority and power that's opposed to him. Then when he's consolidated everything, this is the best chain of mergers ever, the merger and acquisition activity of the Lord Jesus Christ, superb, he takes over all the jurisdictions, and after taking over all the jurisdictions, hands them over to the Father. <coughs> so the thing is, People often misunderstand this. You've probably heard of two kingdoms. Have you heard of two, two kingdoms before? What if I told you there's three? So here are the three kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God eternally. He rules everything all the time, always. God. He's God. Second, He is the incarnate Son of God. In His humanity... He is the king over his own people. That's normally the second kingdom. First kingdom, nailed it. Second kingdom, got that one too. What's the third kingdom? The third kingdom is the one where he shatters the teeth of kings and makes them bow down to him and kiss his pinky ring. That's the third one. The third kingdom is the dominion to which he was exalted after his resurrection when all power in heaven and earth are committed to him. That's not just the church. That's Christ taking all of the power, plundering it to himself and to his people, and then handing it to the Father. The church doesn't end. Christ's godship doesn't end. But his ascended reign, which is a distinctive period of time, that ends. That's the millennium. That's the millennium. So, verse, uh, page 10. There's an argument now about this. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. By the way, that list of those three, that's from Hodge. Okay, so, didn't make it up. I'm the first guy to say it. Hodge lays it out very efficiently there, so I've given you what Hodge said in his commentary. And when you look at the Covenanters fighting against the usurping powers of Charles I and later on Charles II, they would assert the same thing. They talk about the authority of Christ over the church, they would talk about him as the eternal king, and they would also talk about how kings are going to be brought to heel. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's referring to Psalm 110. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Verse 27, for he must put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay, that's Psalm 8. Okay, so Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 are put together there. So let's think about this. This is, this is the text that solidified me as post It's pretty clear throughout the Bible. We win. However, I really wanted that to be true, so I was really worried that I was just thinking it was true because I wanted it. And this one made me really happy because I got to believe what I wanted to believe and be certain about it, which is a great experience. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Okay, he has to reign. It's got to happen until what? Until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Okay, but what if that reign goes on to a really long time? No, there's an end to it because he hands it back over to the Father. Oh, it has a starting point, it has an until point. And he hands it back to the Father. It's a limited thing. And there's a goal, putting all the enemies under his feet. And we're told what the last enemy is. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So there's the general resurrection. So here's the deal. He has to conquer every single one of his enemies before the general resurrection. And then he hands it back to the Father. He hands it back to the father after he defeats the last enemy, which means premillennialism is ruled out. He defeats all of his enemies, which means Vietnam millennialism, millennialism, is ruled out. He bombs Ho Chi Minh City into the sea. Total victory. Vietnam's half the size, half of it's under the ocean, but he won. Now, this total victory, Jesus, beats the last enemy. And the last enemy is death. It means all the other enemies get beat first. All the other enemies get beat first. He's put all things under his feet. Verse 27. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So God the Father is accepted. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Christ as the God-man rules everything, and Christ as the God-man is under God the Father, and so God is glorified. The Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father and the Son glorify the Spirit, the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. God's all in all. So here's the proof text. Psalm 8, the highlight. You have put all things under His feet. The argument is from mankind in general to Christ in particular. Psalm 110. This is about Christ in particular. Go to page 11. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There's the subjecting. The sitting at the right hand is when Christ ascends. And He sits there until all the enemies are subjected so there's the proof text and highlight for you verse 29 otherwise this is another verse that people have a lot of fun with the people who quote this more than anybody else are Mormons let's read the verse otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all why then are they baptized for the dead anybody ever talked to Mormons about this one alright Mormons baptize people as substitutes for dead people. And they, what they say they're doing is essentially taking these people who would suffer hell and in this baptism that's substitutionary there's something where it either saves them or gives them a chance to be saved or something. So is that what the Apostle Paul is talking about? Should we be having, like, baptizing people for the dead services? Reading off, like, names of Aztec warriors that we find on walls and having people get baptized in their place instead? Who knows? Maybe the Aztec warriors had the golden tablets, right? With their horses and chariots and metalworking. Verse 29, otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Paul is talking about a custom that apparently is performed by these guys who are super orthodox that deny the resurrection. Okay, so think about this. You're, you're, the question is who is baptizing the dead? What is Paul talking about? This is called an ad hominem argument where you assume the position of your opponent and show them an absurdity that would be concluded. He just did that. Remember the hypothetical thing we just did? If Christ is not raised from the dead, then blah. Okay? Here, he's doing the exact same thing. These people that deny the resurrection apparently also are baptizing people as substitutes for dead people. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, you guys baptize people in place of dead people. If you're doing that, why are you doing that? Okay, that's, one, that's one reading. The other way of reading this is Paul is talking about you yourself are ceremonially dead. If you're baptized, you are baptized into the death of Jesus. And if you're baptized into the death of Jesus, you are also baptized recognizing the deadness of your flesh. And so the symbolism of resurrection in baptism doesn't make any sense if there's no resurrection. I would like that one. It's easier. I'm not really sure which of them is true. But otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So this is either an ad hominem argument or it's an argument from the meaning of baptism itself. that makes sense? I'm putting you all to sleep. So just nod to make me feel better. Good. And also wake you up. It's an exercise. Stretches to the neck. Verse 30. And why do we stand... In jeopardy every hour. In other words, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why would we risk our lives doing good works? Why would we risk our lives doing good works? Verse 31. I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. He's saying, look... If there's no resurrection, I'm going to live for today. I'm going to live for my self-life. I'm going to live for the flesh in me. I'm going to live to satisfy what I want to satisfy right now. But if there is a resurrection, then I am willing to die. I am willing to die daily. I am willing to risk my life. I am willing to go through things that no sane man who believes that there's no resurrection would ever be willing to do. Verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it for me? So, you know, there are gladiatorial combats that occurred throughout the Roman Empire, including fighting beasts. You could fight a beast for prizes. You could fight a beast for self-glory. So why did Paul fight beasts? This apparently is one of the persecutions he had. He wasn't, like, entering into mixed martial arts and trying to win prize money. What happened is... He is being persecuted. He is suffering. He's being made a prisoner and being forced to fight as a punishment. And he fought beasts at Ephesus. Or sometimes people interpret this as he's fighting heretics who are like unreasoning beasts. in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me? Either one, suffering persecution by being thrown into an arena or fighting against heretics. Like what? Who cares? If there's no resurrection, it's like this is it. What am I doing? Without the doctrine of the resurrection, we don't have a good reason to undergo suffering in this life. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the weakness of the church is because the church is unwilling to fight, unwilling to suffer, unwilling to advance the truth at cost to itself. If we want a strong church, the doctrine of the resurrection The recognition of the rewards at the end of this life is extremely important. The rest of the chapter, which we're not going to get to today, is going to talk about rewards. And so as we think about those things, those become essential for us to know how to live well and to have confidence that it's worth it. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or corrupts good morals. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What's the point of that last part? Bad company corrupts good morals, good habits. What's the bad company being talked about here? People who don't believe in the resurrection. We all think that people with bad morals are people who smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Right? We think that this silliness of the external actions... That the things that we do that are visible are the most important moral things. We go, it's good, everyone's awake. (laughs) We all think that these external acts are the things that are really the big moral problems. The big moral problem is doctrine. Doctrine is a moral issue. Doctrine is a moral issue. The darkness in your own belief system is what causes all particular sins. The corruption of nature is your unbelief. And so particular sins are the things that flow out of false doctrine. The false doctrine is the thing that causes the corruption of morals. And so the call here is to boot these people out of the church. That's the idea. You're spending time with these people, and they have this doctrine. They deny the resurrection. What are you doing? Kick them out. Let them feel the pain of their bad doctrine. Then, verse 34, awake to righteousness. So, as there is this awareness of the importance of true doctrine, and as we are committed to the idea of the goal of, and we're committed to our particular self-interest of doing good works for the glory of God to get individual rewards, which also serves the purpose of blessing the fellow saints and advancing the knowledge of God in the earth. Then we are motivated to avoid sin and the knowledge of God distinguishes those who are dominated by sin versus those who are not. And so why does he end with, I speak this to your shame? Because these people continue to have evil company rather than kicking them out. So do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Put on righteousness. Put away sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. How do we know who doesn't have the knowledge of God? Behavior that they will not change, it is ongoing sin, or bad doctrine. That's you identify those who don't have the knowledge of God. Do you know that perfectly? Like, Can you read their minds? No. But is there an evidentiary base that we have to act off of? Yes. And the will, unwillingness to do that is something that brings shame on the church. And so Paul addressed this earlier on when he was talking about the man who was engaged in a sexual illicit relationship with his stepmother, And here now he's dealing with doctrine. So doctrine and morals are both things to be dealt with. And Paul is teaching us that morals are caused by doctrine. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.